starting in verse 1. And the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cover in ashes, cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is, so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are King of all creation. Lord of creation and Lord of the new creation. Father, we humbly bow ourselves before you. For you are holy, holy, holy. Father, we confess that we are not worthy to come into your presence because we are sinners. We have traded your glory, we have slandered your glory, we have committed cosmic treason, and we have no right. The only thing we deserve is to be snuffed out. But Father, we confess you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You purify us. You wash us clean. And you bring us into the fellowship of your presence by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. A gift that we could never deserve, we could never earn, we could never pay back. It is by your grace, top to bottom, left to right, inside out. We praise you for your grace. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come here this morning as we set our hearts on Christ during this Advent season, a season that is full of hustle and bustle, a season of materialism, a season of want, and a season of aching as we remember that sin has separated us from God, but also from our loved ones. That have, we have been separated by death, separated by strained relationships, strip, step, separated by those who do not love Christ. 
But Father, we thank you for the hope of the gospel which transforms and breathes life into dead hearts. Father, I pray that as we come to you this morning to hear your word, that your spirit would work through these words, these words of truth, these ancient words ever new each morning that give hope and life and peace and joy because they are based not on us and our response, but because they are based on the steadfast character of our unchanging, holy, righteous God. Inhabit the praises of your people. Inhabit the proclamation of your word. In Christ's precious and holy name, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. There's nothing that says Merry Christmas like the Book of Lamentations. Amen? I um, told my pastor friends we were discussing what we were going to be doing for Advent, and we came up with these various things. I said, I'm thinking about either the Book of Lamentations or preaching through um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and so we went with Lamentations. I never thought of that, for the record. But for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at a, a sermon series called The Light Has Come, and it's going to be based, it's based around the four Advent candles, because each of the candles signifies a character of our God. Hope, peace, joy, and love are the red candles, red being symbolic of the reason Christ came to die, to shed his blood as an atonement, an atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to the Father. The white candle is the candle of Christ that we light on Christmas Eve. It is white because it's the purity of it, unstained by sin, and that's the Christ candle. And so each week we will light them, and then each week I will have a thematic sermon, if you will, based on the, the significance of the candle. The candle this morning we look at is the hope candle, and we... Um, I'm going the wrong direction here. Steve, will you just, I, I'm not sure why it's going that direction. Will you put it on the blank slide right after the light has come? Very good. So with that being said, or Angie, you want to go do, go clear the backgrounds and then click on that blank That being said, all right, technology, don't you love it? All right, very good. Um, in 1931, Adolphus Huxley wrote his classic dystopian novel, A Brave New World. Uh, some of you know it, some of you have read it, maybe I know there are movies that have come along, but it talks about a futuristic world where pain and difficulty and fear are all forgotten by the use of a simple pill. Some of you who have read the book know that that little pill was called a Soma pill. The benefits of this pill, the, the, the narrator explained, was all the advantages of Christianity and alcohol with none of their defects. What you all you had to do is take one tiny pill and it would give you a short break from reality and return you to it without a headache and without the need to believe any of the mythology of, mythology of religion. One little pill protected you from all the negative human anxieties and emotion like jealousy and depression and sadness and anxiety. Now, if you read through Brave New World, it is bizarre. 
but it is also prophetic. Because we live in a day and age that, like Huxley's world, uh, wants whatever we possibly can do to avoid pain and avoid sorrow. So what do we do? We come up with our own somas, our own functional saviors, our own depressants to get us away from the gripping effects of reality. We go to medication where we over-medicate ourselves 24-7 into a buzz so we can't deal with, with uh, reality and the harshness of our existence. We go, technology has created virtual worlds of social media and entertainment and gaming that you can bring you into a non-stop buffet of fantasies that, um, that pr allow you to forget reality for days and months and years. We even, this Huxley's prophetic word, if you will, has seeped into the churches as well, into the pulpits, um, where the prosperity gospel promises uh, through the power of positive thinking that every day is Friday, therefore you can live your best life now by ignoring half of Scripture and twisting the other half to your liking. Our world and many churches and our hearts have created functional saviors to help us dull the pain and forget the harshness of reality that haunt us when the medicine wears off, when the entertainment ceases, when the power of positive thinking is shown to be weak. Ocean Park, I want to ask you this morning, how do you deal with the harsh realities of life that strike your hearts with fear and hold your thoughts captive and almost overwhelm your body? How do you deal when the darkness almost overwhelms you? And where do you turn in those moments? And what do you hold on to if you hold on to anything? As our verse said that Jerry and Linda read, the people who stumbled in darkness. Are you stumbling in darkness because of the harsh realities of the midnight of sin that has stalked our history as humans? This morning, what I want you to do is I want you to look, and we actually happen to have one, I want you to look to the manger. The manger is the place where the mercy and the hope of God are come in the person of the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. This child who was hailed by angels, but overlooked by kings and emperors, the child peaceful and mild, who brings light to the darkness, joy to the lowly, and peace to the broken. I want you to look to the manger and find the hope of God. Not a hope like we have in much of our world, which is a whimsical fancy, which we know all too well. I hope the Jaguars win today, which really is a whimsical fancy lately. I hope I get this for Christmas. I hope I win the lottery. I hope, I hope, I hope. Whimsical fantasies that have little tie or connection to reality. But as Christians, we have a hope. And a biblical hope is an unshakable conviction based not on us or what we do or our potential. It is based on the unchanging, steadfast character of God. That is our hope. That is our solid rock on which we stand. All other um, places are sinking sand. 
Because I promise you, as you grow older, Venus and I sailed through our 20s, it was great. We hit our 30s and the wheels started to shake and things started to rattle. And when the rains came down and the, uh, the floods came up and the waters, uh, the winds beat on the house, those that are built on whimsical fantasies of hope will fall and the fall will be great. But those who are, uh, are anchored on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, a hope which will not move, will stand firm. This morning, as we look at the hope, I want you to see this. I want you to, my big idea, when despair overwhelms, when despair overwhelms, find hope in the promise-keeping God. When despair overwhelms, Find hope in the promise-keeping God. We're going to do this two ways, and you've already I've let the cat out of the bag, uh, but we see one out of uh, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, and I'm going to expand that a little bit, but I want you to recognize sin's devastation. Recognize sin's devastation, and two, trust God's faithfulness. Trust God's faithfulness. When that despair comes, this is how we trust and find hope in the promise-keeping God. So let's turn there now. If you're not already, in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 27, we see sin's devastation. Ironically, the most hopeful place where we have the character of God is in the most unlikely places, which is the book of Lamentations. Lamentations probably is one of the five heaviest chapters in all of Scripture. And honestly, because it is a grief and a lament of the prophet Jeremiah as he looks at his city that lays in rubbles. The smoke ascends to the heaven. He heals the wail of mothers over the bodies of their dead children. He sees in the distance as most of his people are being uh, dragged into slavery, into exile by the Babylonians. And his heart is heavy because year after year he warned the wrath of God. The day of God is coming. But year after year they refuse to listen to his cries. It is only recorded that two people in all of Jeremiah's multi-decade ministry ever listened to his words until it was too late. Often Lamentations is a book that people skip over because it's simply too depressing. Ocean Park, if we fail to hear the message of Lamentations, we will miss a fundamental truth concerning the character of God on whom we have built our hope. It is a foundation stone that will not move. And if we don't want to get our hands dirty or to have the heaviness or the size of our soul, we will miss what will sustain us when the rains come. That begins, we must recognize sin's devastation. Verses 19 and 20. Remember my affliction, he writes. The, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. 
Jeremiah stands before the ruins of his city and he weeps. Not because Israel is an innocent people that had been conquered by the wicked Babylonians, but because he knew Jerusalem's devastation was the result of the self-inflicted wounds of idolatry, immorality, and spiritual adultery. Jeremiah wept because he knew and he realized sin's profound devastation upon him, upon his people, and upon the world. And as he writes in these two verses, he writes of sin's oppression and sin's bitterness. This devastation of sin has caused, caused oppression and bitterness. Notice the oppression that sin brings. I remember my affliction and my wanderings. Jerusalem had just received the just condemnation for their foolish rebellion against their covenant God. The days of blessing and prosperity in the land flowing with milk and honey were now replaced by affliction and wandering at the hands of wicked Babylonian army. The people had sowed their seed into the wind and now were reaping the whirlwind. Notice Lamentations 3, chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, verse 1. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. Jeremiah sees the after effects of the wrath of God being poured out and he weeps for his city that is in ruins. He weeps weeps for his people that are going into slavery. He weeps because the temple where the Spirit of God once dwelled is in ashes. The Shekinah glory has been removed from the presence of his people and the people have been scattered. How could this possibly have happened? We see time and time again, as you read through the prophets of old, the people refuse to follow the law of God. The law, as we taught our children this past Wednesday in their catechism, the law of God that was designed to allow people to walk with God, to have fullness of life, that it was designed for for their good, to bring people into fellowship and harmony with God. They discarded it for whatever seemed right in their own eyes, and they followed their heart. Disney tells you to follow your heart is one of the worst, honestly, what's some of the worst advice. Don't do it. Jeremiah, in another place, says the heart is desperately wicked. We need to follow Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Longing for freedom. The people of God rebelled against God with their hearts, with their minds, and with their bodies. Yet the freedom they longed for never came, but instead it was sin's ruthless opposition. The opposition of sin was so intense that Jeremiah likens it to despair that he felt in a prison. In ancient times, um, the Babylonians and other peoples were known for a a unique form of of cruelty and, and torture where they would take prisoners and lock them into confined spaces where they couldn't straighten out, they couldn't move their arms, and they would leave them there to die. You can imagine the agony and the cruelty of these people. 
that would experience this. And notice in Lamentations 3, 7 through 10, he has walled me about so I cannot escape. The oppression of sin that has been poured out on the people as a result of their rebellion against what is good and right and moral in the eyes of God has led them into captivity, not into freedom. It has walled them about so I cannot escape. And not only that, he has made chain, my chains heavy. Though I call for help and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my path crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. Do you feel the heaviness of the oppression of sin? He laments because sin has led them into bondage. In this bondage, not only are they bound uh, by walls, but they're bound by heavy chains and a wall th so thick that his cries for help cannot be heard on the outside. And if he were possibly able to break free from this, it says there are stones that block the way and there are angry uh, or not, hungry lions that prey upon them and their paths are crooked where the people would get lost. Jeremiah despairs of sin's oppression on his people. And he knows this is not the wickedness of Babylonia. It is the wickedness of the heart of the people who have God, who have led them into this position, this sorrowful state. The only person to blame is themselves. He continues, when not only the oppression of sin, but the bitterness of sin. Notice that the latter half of verse 19, the wormwood and the gall. Sin not only oppresses its victim, but it overwhelms them with bitterness. The picture that Jeremiah uses here is the picture of a hunter pursuing an animal. Notice verses 12 and 13. He bent his bow and set me as the target of his arrow. You can see a great hunter pulling back the arrow with laser-like precision, and he puts Jeremiah and the people in the crosshairs, and he hits it the first time into the kidneys. Now you say, the kidneys? In ancient times, it was not the heart that was the seat of emotions to the people, it was the kidneys. And when the, the arrow of the hunter pierced the kidneys, it burst forth in emotions from the heart of the people. Grief and sorrow and lament. They're weeping over the heaviness of the sin, the bitterness of the sin in their lives and their people. Not only is there great grief that is overwhelming him, but it says, I am being forced to eat revolting food of bitterness and humility. Verse 14 and 16, I have become the laughing stock of all people, the objects of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he had made me cower in ashes. The oppression and the bitterness of the people of Jeremiah is met with scorn and contempt. Rather than pity, they receive scorn. Rather than compassion, they receive cruelty. Rather than comfort, they receive distress. The only comfort that Jeremiah has is the bitter wormwood that was a mix and concoction of, of, of uh, plants to dull the pain and the, the, to eat the dirt of total humiliation. The, the heaviness of sin 
The overwhelming oppression and bitterness of sin has pushed Jeremiah to the brink. He knows no peace. He knows no happiness. He know, has no hope of deliverance. The only thing he can uh, perceive is the overwhelming despair. Ocean Park, have you ever been there? When you realize the hopelessness, the weight, the heaviness of sin. We cannot stand before a holy God, but we have committed cosmic treated and rebelled against God, and it overwhelms us knowing that any moment, if God were just, if God were fair, he would snuff us out for all eternity. Sin only leads us to oppression and bitterness, no matter how appealing it may be on the outside. Think of the first example of the oppression of sin was in the garden. Eve looked at the fruit and it says it was pleasing to the eyes and it was desired to make one wise. And what did they do? They reached, they took, and they ate. And she gave it to Adam and he ate. And from then, Adam and his descendants fell into death and decay and destruction. Sin cannot deliver on the promises that it makes. See, it promises joy but it leads you to heartache. It promises you freedom, but it leads you to bondage. It promises you life, but it only brings death. And as we read through these words of lamentations, it overwhelms us about a sober reminder that all that glitters is not gold. Israel had surrounded themselves, rather than the truth of God, with false prophets who lied to them. And priests who did not go before God on their half, but served their bellies, and it destroyed them. Jeremiah, in his book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Brothers and sisters, we, like Jeremiah and the people, have followed the foolish idolatry of Judah. We turn away from the well of living water for broken cisterns, for functional saviors, for the promises of sin, for the blue skies, and the tiptoe through the tulips that sin tells us they can provide, only realizing that it is death and decay and devastation that it reaps. We only know the wormwood and the gall that cannot quench the thirst of our souls. So what do we do? I think this is a common situation, if we're honest, that, that eats at us and nags at us, that haunts us in our sleep. What do we do? We look for somas, right? We look for functional saviors that will be able to whisk us away from reality for a brief moment. We try to deaden that pain with alcohol and narcotics and pleasure and work and digital fantasy worlds and sports and entertainment and charity and religion, yet nothing can quench the insatiable thirst of our soul. Nothing eases the pain. It may distract us for a little while, but the crash down to reality is brutal. 
Notice Jeremiah in chapter 3 of Lamentations, verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Jeremiah and those who know the devastation of sin are living in a broken world and they know that it's exhausting. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We despair because we know the devastation that sin has brought to our hearts and our bodies, our families and our societies, our cultures and our entertainment, but we have no answers. Good thing I'm not stopping here, right? Amen. Ocean Park, this is where God wants us. Because when he gets us here, we stop the dance and the song and dance of morality and religion and functional saviors and thinking we've got it figured out and that we can prove to God our worth. But we realize that oppression and bitterness of sin is not because of those people or those things or my parents or my children or my spouse, but the problem and oppression of bitterness of sin is because of my wicked heart that has rebelled against God and I have no answers for it. At that point, we will cry out to God, I have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Thirsty come to you. Until we realize the devastation of sin is our own fault, we will never turn to the promise-keeping God who offers the hope of salvation. When despair overwhelms, brothers and sisters, Find hope in the promise-keeping God. Verse 21 through 27, or we see sin's devastation, but at that, that point we trust God's faithfulness. 21 through 27. And here is where we settle. Knowing now, because often, honestly, as a side to all this, we get verses like 22 and 23, and we, well, that's a nice verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And we're like, well, isn't that nice? But we don't realize the dark, inky background behind this precious jewel of the, moral, the character of God that shines brightly in the darkness. And now when we realize the, the hopelessness of sin, the beauty of the gospel is spectacular. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If Jeremiah were to simply stop in verse 21 or 20, and brood over the bitterness that surrounded in this world, he would slip into utter despair and hopelessness. But instead, instead of focusing on the difficulties and the hopelessness, in the midst of the fog and the darkness, he reaches out and the only thing he can hold on to is the character of his God. And it's the only thing that will save him. It is the only thing that will save us. Believe me, brothers and sisters, if you have not gone through difficulties in life, living in a world that is tainted and touched by sin, there are some times when even the most faithful ones have forsaken us or disappointed us or our health fails us or we lose someone we love. It takes uh, all anything to hold on to that. 
The only solid rock we have is the faithfulness of our God when the rains come down and the floods come up. To build a house anywhere else is build a house on sand. Notice in 21 and 22, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah realizes the fact that he has breath in his lungs means that he has not received the full punishment of what he deserves because in the wrath of God has not consumed him, but the faithful, steadfast love of the Lord cares for him because it's unceasing, because it's renewing, and because it's faithful. Notice verse 22. God's love is unceasing. The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to the end. Lamentations reminds us, even in the bitterness of sin, the love of our God is sweet. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is the word hesed, which communicates communicates the grace and love of our God. Probably the most brilliant revelation of the character of God is in Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus thirty-four six and seven. And the, what, this is right after the golden calf narrative. The Lord says He will smite the people for their sin. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And it says the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping chesed, steadfast love, for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, Hesed is used some 250 times to communicate God's love and His compassion, His grace and His truth and His faithfulness and His goodness and His forgiveness. Probably one of the best definitions that I have found is from Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Amen? So as Jeremiah stands back and he surveys the, the remains of his lonely city that was once filled with people, but now it's only the stench of death and despair. He does not brood on the destruction that is around him. He reminds himself, he anchors himself on the love of God which is unceasing. He repeats the prayers of Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger, God's anger is for but a moment. But notice, His favor, His chesed, is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry in the night, but amen, joy comes in the morning. Jeremiah reminds us no matter how bitter the circumstances of our life, How deep the agony, how dark the night, the steadfast love of God is uh, sweeter, is deeper, is stronger, and is brighter. His compassion can never be overwhelmed, His grace can never be exhausted, and His kindness can never be worn out. Not only is God's love unceasing, but God's love is renewing. The latter half of verse 23, they are new every morning. This summer, my family and I were able to go out to Fort White, Florida, and go to, down the Itchituckney River, and that many of us have done that. And you know that the head of the river, of the Itchituckney River, there is a spring, 
and it's a natural spring that comes up from the aquifer, and the water year-round is 72 degrees, and it is clean, and it is clear, and it is refreshing, even on the hottest of days in August. If you were to take a, a bottle and to bottle up that cool, crisp water, after a while it would grow warm, and it would run out maybe on your hike or your float. Or eventually, if you never drank that water, it would grow stagnant and be unfit to drink. However, no matter what time of year, no matter what period of your life from uh, childhood to adulthood, when you go back to that spring, the water is always 72 degrees, clean and crisp and refreshing. It is new every morning. Every day that water flows and it's something new. It's never exhausted and it, it feeds the river. When Jeremiah's soul was empty, he remembered the spring of living water, of life and joy that was new every morning that he could scoop his hand into and drink. That is, my friends, the mercies and grace of God like manna in the wilderness that leads us and guides us, the grace of God, even on the hard, hardest days and the darkest nights. Every day it's the mercies of God because of His steadfast love that feed the sparrow, that clothe the lily, that gives new mercies for his, to His children. Mercies for relationships. Mercies for work. Mercies for disappointments. Mercy in victories. Mercy in successes. Mer mercies in failures. Mercies on sunny days and mercies on starless nights. It is the only the mercies of God that sustain us every day as we go through this dark and, and, and weary land. Spurgeon, commenting on this text, said this, Our treasures which we lay on earth are stagnant pools, but the treasure which God gives us from heaven in providence and in grace is the crystal fount from which wells up from the eternal deeps and is always fresh and always new. Jeremiah remembers, even on the darkest days, that every day we wake up, we can drink anew the mercies of God. The refreshing graces and mercies which are new, like the manna in the wilderness that sustained Israel, the mercies of God give us grace each day and sustain us. Grace to heal, grace to renew, grace to grow, grace to flourish. And like we taught our children, our God says, come drink deep of my grace. But far too often on those hot days we're parched, we wander through the wilderness when the well that is running anew is there for us and we don't drink deep of that. Not only we rejoice because God's love is unceasing, God's love is renewing, but God's love is steadfast. Notice the end of 23. Great is your faithfulness. If you read through the narratives of Scripture, you're often struck by two things. The fickleness of man. We often turn our nose up on Israel. Oh, they're terrible. I would have never done that. Brothers and sisters, newsflash, we're just like Israel. We're just wearing different clothes. We have different cultures, but we have the same fickle hearts. Not only do we see man's fickleness, but we also see the faithfulness of God. 
Time and time again, God's people grumble and they complain and they forget God's goodness and they break their covenant with God, yet God does not break His covenant promises with them. He is steadfast. Generation after generation forgot their covenant with God. Generation after generation disregarded the terms of the covenant. Generation after generation rebelled against God. Yet God's covenant fidelity and integrity remains intact even when um, it could, because it was never based on what the people did. It was based on God, His character, His faithfulness, and not our worthiness. His character. His faithfulness never changes. Great is His faithfulness. Even when we change and we forget and we grow weary and we waver, when we wander and rebel and grow cold and unfeeling, when our circumstances are seasons and our emotions change, God remains faithful to His promises. Thomas Chisholm came to Christ at 27 years old and Um, About 10 years later, at the age of 36, he entered the ministry, but health only allowed him to serve in ministry for one year. He moved to New Jersey, and he sold life insurance, barely scraping by until he eventually was called home to be with the Lord. Over the course of that time, he wrote nearly 12,000 poems and several hymns, including one of them that we sing Great is thy faithfulness, which is based on Lamentations chapter 3. He wrote in his diary, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health, and in the earlier years which has followed me until now, although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God who has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. Schism and Jeremiah did not brood on the effects of sin in their world, but they concentrated and they clinged to the, the character of God. And Chisholm wrote the words, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Makes you want to sing, right? Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, what? New mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We sing songs like that at Thanksgiving. We sing it at harvest. We sing it when the God has been good. Do we sing it at the graveside of our child, of our parent, at the oncologist's office, when we've lost our jobs? We need to sing it at those times because we need to remember those. Because when the bitterness of sin overwhelms us, we turn to our covenant-keeping God, our promise-keeping God who does not change. Do you believe the words of Jeremiah? Do you believe? Can you sing with Chisholm, great is thy faithfulness? Not just in times of plenty, but in times of lack. When you're physically and emotionally and spiritually weary. And if you're not right now, give it time. It'll come. Amen? Amen. When you are taste the bitterness of living in a world that is tainted by sin, 
when you bear the consequences of your own sin and your own foolish choices. Ocean Park, you can focus on the misery of your situation, the weight of God's discipline, or the mystery of God's providence. Or you can do this. You can rest on the steadfast love of God, which is unceasing, it is renewing, and it is steadfast. Notice what Jeremiah did in chapter 3, verse 25. He confessed, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Ocean Park, are you looking to the steadfast of the Lord while you wait your salvation to come? Are you allowing, or are you allowing yourself to slip into the despair as you focus on the circumstances of your life that you do not like? Like Jeremiah, he calls us to weep over the life that you hope we, you would have to grieve the losses than to wash your face and trust the steadfast love of God and embrace the life that you have. That is a safer place to do under the wing of our Savior who holds us fast. When despair overwhelms, brothers and sisters, find hope in the promise-keeping God. We don't look for a magic Soma pill. We don't look for functional saviors. We look to the Savior, the King of glory, whose steadfast love cares for us. And we look this season to the manger. The manger which held the good news of great joy, which is for all people. The manger which is the living, breathing proof of God's chesed, His never stopping, never giving up, all unbreaking, always and forever love. The manger which proved that God does not forget His promises, even when we feel like we, He had. Generation after generation had experienced sin and sorrow throughout Old Testament and throughout our day. We feel the curse of thorns that infested the grounds of our hearts and our bodies and our relationship. We're grieved at this destruction that sin has wreaked in our world. We weep the tears knowing that this is not the way it's supposed to be. But we do by faith trust the steadfast love of our promise-keeping God. Our promise-keeping God who told Eve, he, your offspring, will come and crush the head of the enemies of God. In the manger, He was born. At the cross, they crushed His heel. But at the cross, Christ crushed the head of the enemies of God. In Genesis chapter 12, it was to Abraham that said, through you, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Look to the manger. That babe, that child that was born, descendant of Abraham, would come and bring salvation and blessing to all the world. 2 Samuel 7.16 God promising David, your throne will be established through forever. The king has been born. Born in the manger. Descendant of David in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Look to the manger and see the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. That Paul declares all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Because salvation has come in the manger. 
and salvation was accomplished on the cross. Because of that, we can weep over the effects of sin in our world as we wait the sweetness of our Savior who was coming. The child in the manger is our hope. The manger is not hollow sentimentality, but is the fulfillment of God's promise to vanquish sin and bring salvation to all the world through the cross of Christ. The child in the manger would bear the full extent of the, love, the wrath of God so that we could, extent the, we could experience the full extent of the love of God. The child would drink bitter, the, the fullness of the bitter cup so we could drink the sweetness of the mercies of God. Jesus Christ is a living hope for a world that's overwhelmed by the despair of sin, that seeks somas and functional saviors and escapes from reality, but in the gospel actually makes us more aware of reality because the gospel points us to the reality of the promise-keeping God who has fulfilled his promises in Christ when he wrote himself into the story, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who took the cross upon him that we may have life. May we, as we prepare this Advent, look to the hope that we have in Christ. May we be ready. And when despair overwhelms, find hope in the promise-keeping God who gave us Jesus Christ.